The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Hey, what's going on, guys? Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today, we have episode 144. Into the episode, we will play chapters 29 and 30. You know what? Fuck it. Let's go ahead and do 31 as well. Let's finish the book. Uh, three chapters, things like 45, 46 minutes. So... I will keep this short because I don't have a guest because I have not been, well, one, it's been too busy, uh, but I am going to be doing that for the next year. Uh, I spent the last week looking up different collaborations, reaching out to different podcasters, different guests. Um, so planning on having more people on this year. Uh, it gets boring talking about myself uh, and I need to figure out what I'm going to be sharing next. After this one, so next week I begin, I uh, just ran out of studio, so on next Tuesday and Wednesday night I will be recording TBI or CT, what the hell is wrong with me, so I believe I will probably start sharing that uh, next week, so if I can't, then I will put up another thing in between, but I think TBI or CT is what we will be focusing on for a little bit. Uh, which makes me really want to write more fiction. Uh, I've been struggling. I've been working on trying not to die back at Grandma's house. It is just a short story. Continues the Try Not to Die at Grandma's house. It is also the basis for the first expansion pack for the Try Not to Die board game I'm working on. Um, it was I was doing a pretty good job, but then I was kind of waiting to see what my co-author would say. We haven't talked in a while, Anthony Spock. Uh, but I emailed him the idea. He loved it, so I'm going to send him the outline of the story. Now that I have his go-ahead, I think it should be cool. It should be fun. I think I have it all figured out. It's going to be pretty brutal, um, but it is kind of crazy to have a difficult time writing a short story. Um, also, I had this last month when I was working on Tenderize. I just had to set it to the side. Is another short story. Generally, I don't have problems with short stories. I can knock them out really quick within a matter of, I'd say, probably two weeks. Um, I should have a story pretty much done. Uh, but because of everything that's been going on, because I'm so distracted, and also because of the stuff going on in my brain, uh, that that section of my brain that uh, handles imagination is under-functioning. So that's probably part of it too. <sighs> but whatever, it is what it is. Uh, all I've been focused, well, one of the focuses this week has been getting back into a good working out routine, uh, which has been awesome. So Monday, every day this week we've worked out. Uh, my friend George and I, uh, three days of lifting. Yesterday was yoga, which was awesome. And then today we'll be back to lifting. So do that 8.30 this morning. It's a good start to the day. Uh, by 9.30, I'm feeling good. Uh, one of the cool things that we got out of yesterday's yoga session, it was a brutal session. Uh, George was talking about like, man, he's like, I want to be able to finish that. And I was like, well, well, we will be able to. We just need to, because we probably did about 40 minutes of the 60-minute class, and then we just stretched that thing on our own. And we realized that we need to do it more than once a week. I used to do yoga all the time. So I told him, well, why don't we just start at least adding in 10 minutes at the start of every weight workout? You know, I could do a 10-minute flow, 10, 10 to 15-minute flow, maybe working on different things. Uh, be a great way to warm us up and just get us that much more flexible. So that is what we're starting with that. Another cool thing that happened this week is the response to two of the giveaways I have been doing. I ran a Goodreads contest for, well, Goodreads giveaway for the Wizard's Tower. 
generally that could be anywhere from like 400 to 1200 people requesting it. This was the most requested book I have launched with over 2000 people um, trying to get these 10 copies. So there were 10 lucky winners. Those will be mailed off probably on Monday. And then we're also running the holiday, post-holiday horror giveaway or try not to die giveaway, whatever I decided to call it. Uh, that one's doing really well. And I've barely shared it. I think I've only put it out like three times, shared it on the newsletter. I'll share it again on the newsletter. Um, but it's been awesome. It's led me to so many new readers, so many new fans, newsletter subscribers. I think we have like 2,600 entries so far. Um, you know, it just made me realize if I had really pushed it, uh, could have been that much better. But I think I'm just going to run those. I'll probably run a horror giveaway or a fiction giveaway every three months and a brain type giveaway, you know, every couple of months. So, and maybe I'll do an MMA, MMA one for unlocking a cage or something like that. We'll see. So that is what's going on there. That was cool to see that those were very, uh, in my mind, they were successful. Uh, with a newsletter, I've been taking a good look at that because one of the important things is your open rate. And trying to get that open rate back up is difficult. It used to be really good, but then I was adding on new subscribers, new subscribers, never getting rid of the ones that were never opening up the emails. Motherfuckers. But I get it. I have so many like that. I just delete, delete, delete. Uh, so now I sent out one last, like I think it was last week, I sent out a final emails saying, hey, if you don't want to be on it, not a problem. Um, you know, let me just delete you or unsubscribe you. You could unsubscribe yourself. But if you want to stay, stick around. So there was a small percentage that opened up the newsletters and said that they want to stay. The rest will be getting the X today, which is quite a few people. But it's all good because that is, instead of me being disappointed, like, oh, now I have less subscribers. Like, no, now my open rate is going to get that much better. Now a Weber who I do my newsletter through is going to uh, have better delivery rates. And so it's more likely that people will actually get the newsletter. So that part of it is cool. Um, what else? With the newsletter, that's another place where I'm trying to connect with different authors. Trying, It's always a little difficult because figuring out who would be a good match. Who would my readers like? Uh, you know, I don't want to be sharing books that aren't very good or being promos that have just a bunch of crap. So I try to stay away from those. Um, so I've been doing more of that, trying to grow my newsletter uh, by swapping with other people, exposing myself to other readers. Uh, that's been kind of cool. Yeah, so it's very difficult. That's one reason why in the newsletter I never recommend people's books. I always say, here's some other books you might enjoy. That means that I've looked at their Amazon page. Um, I've looked at the author. I've made sure that they've had decent reviews. Like, well, I, I tried, I think decent reviews is around the four star rating, you know, that and better. Um, so if they meet that and it sounds like something my fans would like, then I will share it. But I never say, hey, check this book out. It's really good. I'm not going to do that for something I haven't read. But I am reading a book right now, Malignant, Michael Brent Collins. Um, I had a lot of people in my dark and fear, dark and disturbing fear-filled fiction group recommend him. I had never read him before. I saw, I've been on lots of newsletter swaps with him or in group promos. Uh, see what we have a lot of also bots. Like he's in my, people that have bought my book have also bought his. So there's a lot of connection there. Then hearing all my readers' responses in the you know the dark and disturbing group, uh, so I went ahead and bought his book. Pretty awesome. Just started it last night, uh, reading with other people in the group. So if you want to check it out, do that. We're probably going to talk about it next week. I am a slow reader, but this book is going to keep my attention. 
So I was a little bit afraid after reading the introduction. It's going to be a little bit too brutal, but that's okay. Maybe I need to maybe I need to sharpen my edge a little bit. Maybe I'm a little bit too peace loving and hippie-ish and too much yoga and weed. Maybe I need to get back into the dark side. We shall see. Oh, one other thing I've been doing. So didn't make my guitar lesson this week, but I've been playing a lot. Well, maybe not even a lot. For me, it's a lot because I feel like I'm not being productive when I'm playing a game. But we have Oculus, the uh, virtual reality, and I got two drumming games. The first one I got was Smash Drums. I downloaded it. I looked at all the songs. I'm like, this fucking sucks. It's no, there's no metal on it. Uh, so I downloaded Ragnarok, and that one's pretty awesome. That one's a lot of fun. It was very surprising that there were a lot of bands that I enjoy on there. Uh, my kids thought that was hilarious, too, because... I don't think anyone else listens to these bands, especially in America, or they probably have a very small following. Ailstorm is one. They're like pirate metal. And there's like three or four of their songs on there. Um, they might have a decent U.S. following, but uh, what are the other bands? Feuerschwanz, uh, uh, Celestial Mortis. I don't even know how you say his name, that band's name. Um, but there's a lot of cool bands on there. I'm enjoying it. It's all like medieval Norse mythology type stuff. Uh, really cool, a lot of fun, good little workout, and so yeah, that's what I've been doing, but also did guitar, even though I missed my guitar lesson, like yesterday when I took my daughter to her singing lesson, I'm in the car for an hour, so I, instead of bringing work with me, which I sometimes do, so I could just work while I'm in the car on my computer, I brought my guitar, and I practiced for an hour, and it was a shitty hour of practice, but it was good to do, so I just need to do that more often, um, yeah, so that is what I've been doing. Pretty productive week. Pretty happy with everything. Also realizing that there's no real rush. I was just talking with John Palisano about the Wild West. You know, he was saying it was just a little bit slow for him last couple of weeks, looking it over. So I'm not even a worry. Like whenever it comes out, whenever he's ready, I'll be ready. I told him the diff difficulties I've been having with creative writing. So I'm not worried about it at all. I just got a new section from... Uh, Evan, who is doing a, a dark fairy tale, and so he sent me more of his book. That's awesome. That's being developed. So I never know who knows what book five is going to be. I don't know if it's going to be super high, the Western at summer camp, um, maybe the fairy tale. Who knows? I'm not sure when it's going to come out, but I know I should have a book out by June at very latest. That's that's when I would like to launch one. I was going to do one in March, but I realized that's way too soon. That's me pushing it. That's not. That's me not giving it the book a good chance of success. So while I'm working on the board game, these short stories, I'll also be developing these other try not to dies and have at least two out this year and working on my brain and the brain book follow up. But so a lot of, a lot of stuff, all good though, all good stuff. I'd rather have too much work than none at all. So while my brain is still working, I need to take advantage of it. All right, guys, I got a busy morning. Got to go lift some weights. Got to give my son some breakfast in reverse. I'm going to feed him first before I go take care of myself. Uh, but I hope you guys have an amazing week. I hope you enjoy the rest of this book. Uh, pretty brutal. Love to know what you think at the end of it. Uh, maybe I don't want to know. Uh, I'll just pretend that you really enjoyed it. All right, so we got Beyond Brightside 29, 30, and 31. Finish of the book. Yeah, hopefully you guys dig it. And I will talk to you next week. Later. Chapter 29 We're in a gigantic living room. Fanciest one I've ever been in. 
dark oak bookshelves built into two walls, a huge TV taking up the third. The only door is closed, the piano cold and crisp, cutting through the murmur of voices. Tone switches off the lights and slips into the corner behind the green armchair. I'm still by the window, can see the backyard with the living room dark. Way off to the left, there's someone heading this direction, scanning back and forth with a flashlight. Shit, he keeps going and he'll see Harris. Let him be, Becky says. Stay focused. I can't listen to her because this guy's going to sound the alarm. Fuck all our plans. He's still about 30 yards out, but all I've got is this Glock. Becky lays her hand on my cheek, turns me so we're facing, only inches apart. We can't do anything about it now. There's a fire raging in her eyes, a battle for control, fear and love, hate and honor. All we can do is finish this. She's not expecting a kiss, but doesn't pull away. A light touch that might be goodbye. There's movement to my right, so I push Becky out of the way and drop to my knee, raise my gun. My fingers on the trigger starting to squeeze when Becky grabs hold of the gun and says, No! I wait to get shot, but there's only the blue and green waves pulsating on the TV's screensaver. Shit. I'm sorry. Becky tells me, forget it, and walks to the door. Gotta make sure no one heard me. Tone thinks, we're good. No one down this hall. I don't know what kind of range Tone has, but I'll take his word for it. I'm useless past six feet. Becky about five times that. I ask her, you picking anything up? Becky blows out a breath and presses herself against the door, lets in a line of light as she cracks it open. I check behind us, breathe a little easier when the boot with a flashlight walks out of sight, past the spot where we ditched Harris. Becky thinks, damn, your father wasn't kidding about it being a party. Tone tells her, eyes and ears. Becky nods. At the end of this hallway, there are several people standing around, drinks in hand. Three middle-aged men, fancy suits. Five women in dresses, one boot. Can you tell where the main party is taking place? Well, there's nothing going on between us and them, and there isn't much house left to our left. So the right. Should have known with the piano they're probably in the ballroom. Becky wants to move, to do something. So how long do we stay here? Until his dad says so. Well, I don't think Becky straightens up, takes a step back from the door. What's wrong? Someone's coming. She grabs my hand and runs to the couch. I think we're taking cover behind it, but she throws herself on the couch, lands on her back, pulls me on top of her, our guns clanking between us. What are you doing? She plants her lips on mine. Kiss me. I expect to be shot in my back, but do as she says. This won't be such a terrible way to go. Becky beneath me, her heart and my heart a duet of drumbeats. Her mouth warm, tongue darting. She tells me, this is it. It's been ten seconds, maybe twenty. No one's coming. Becky keeps me close, our lips locked. Two of them, they're texting. I break off the kiss and suck in some air. Don't want to pass out if I get up too fast. Becky brings me back down, her hand on the back of my head. The door opens, and a teenage boy says, What the fuck, you turned this off? I think he's talking to us, but a squeaky voice says, Wasn't me. The room lights flick on, and Becky stops kissing. 
She looks over my shoulder and says, We're sorry. Didn't think anyone was in here. Well, this is our room. The entitled little shit stuffs his phone in his front pocket and thumbs to the door. The party's out there. Let me up. Keeping it nice and friendly, Becky says, Just a sec and we'll get out of your hair. I roll off Becky and get to my feet. The boys look related, probably in high school, uncomfortable in white button-downs and black ties. Squeaky's probably a couple years younger, all his attention on the TV, which just flicked on, a game controller in his hand. His arrogant-looking brother shakes his blonde shoulder-length hair, his chubby cheeks jiggling with it. He's checking out Becky, wonders if I was the one who beat her up. She says, Sorry to interrupt, boys. Back to the boring party. Squeaky chuckles from the couch. <laughs> Have fun. Blondie's looking at my forehead. Why are you bleeding? I didn't know I was, but before I can say a word, he asks, Who are you? Tone slides out from behind the chair and closes the door. Submachine gun aimed at them. Enough talk. Get your ass on that couch. Blondie doesn't even blink when he sees the gun. You know who we are? What the hell are you doing? Tone steps forward, eyes crazed, shoves his gun in the kid's face, the barrel smashing into his cheek. Telling you to sit the fuck down, he says so calm that it chills my blood. Another word, and I splatter your head all over the place. Blondie plops on the couch next to his brother, furious at himself for trembling. He doesn't say a word, but thinks, Grandpa's gonna kill you. I say, Who's Grandpa? Squeaky doesn't know why I'm asking and says, General, Blondie smacks his arm. Shut the fuck up, Matthew. Here we go, Dad says, making me jump. I spin around, expect to see him climbing through the window, but no one's there. Becky thinks, radio, just as Chip and Tone copy Dad's transmission. Tone stands, striking distance from the brothers, motions at the big screen behind them. How do we watch the security cameras on here? Matthew points to the remote. Tone hands it over and Matthew switches it to channel three. A red alert flashes on the bottom of the screen with the words, person approaching, dad limping up the driveway. I ask, what's he doing? Following the plan. Dad pushes a button on the box by the gate and a buzzer rings. There's the click of someone picking up. Hello? The no-nonsense voice says. How may I help you? My name is Hank Nolan the number two most wanted man in America. Becky puts her hand on my shoulder because I'm freaking out inside. The voice says, Stay right there. On one condition. I would like five minutes of the general's time. I will give a full confession of my crimes, all my knowledge of the underground, but I will only give it directly to the general. Do not move or you will be shot. Dad leans against the gate. I'm not going anywhere. I'll take you to public enemies one and five. He looks directly at the camera and says, My boy is reckless and needs to be stopped. The piano is no longer playing, people chattering down the hall. Matthew is on his knees, shirt off, cheeks smashed against the floorboard, a gun buried in the back of his skull. His face crunches up as Tone applies pressure. Tone turns to the one named Kirk, who's cringing on the couch, hugging himself. Don't make me do it, fat fuck. Gonna get your brother splattered over a shirt? Kirk's the same age as Becky, but new to this game. Fine. You can have it, he says, his voice trembling. 
Tone turns the gun on him, keeps his voice low. So take it off. Kirk's taking too long, and Tone's gonna fire. I cover my face so I don't get splattered, but Tone's expression gets Kirk moving. He pops the buttons free, hands over the shirt, covers his saggy breasts. Becky's at the door looking like a waitress in Matthew's white button-down. She says, hurry up. The upper right quadrant of the TV screen shows the front gate where five boots surround my father. Kirk's shirt is tight on the shoulders, but I get it buttoned, tucked in my pants. I grab my gun and hold it underneath a Time magazine, hope it'll look like I'm cleaning. Or reading on the job, Becky thinks, also convincing. She grabs a newspaper from the end table and pulls out the sword sheathed inside her pants. Hold up. Tone grabs my discarded sweatshirt off the floor and wipes the blood off my forehead. Anyone asks, say your boyfriend-girlfriend got into a scuffle. That sounds like an excellent way to get arrested, but I understand there won't be any talking. On the bottom screen, three boots march my father down the driveway. Becky nods at the scared shitless and shirtless brothers curled up on the couch. You got them? I'd rather be out there. Only way. He doesn't want to hear it and shakes his head. Go then. Becky steps into the bright hallway like she belongs, walking with a purpose, the folded newspaper in her right hand. The white marble sparkles, gaudy pieces of art spaced along both walls. She keeps to the left of the hallway, so I don't accidentally put a bullet in her back. Smart girl. There's no one standing around anymore, but someone in black pants is sitting on one of the high-backed chairs up ahead. Becky thinks, that's the rear of the foyer in the main staircase. She continues through the intersecting hallway, which is empty except for a fancy couple headed away from us. We're only ten feet away from black pants, but I can't make out a face. It's definitely a guy by the size of his hand holding the armrest. A very tan hand. Becky tells me, act natural. The guy leans forward and looks right at me. A shiny, silver sentinel collar wrapped around his neck. Carlos, Becky thinks, because my brain's so slow I forgot my old boss. Carlos doesn't recognize Becky, but it's all over me, his brain battling what to do as he stands. Becky hears his decision and thinks, cover me. I don't know what I'm covering, but I step where she was as she leaps at Carlos, knocks him down in the chair. Thank God no one's watching. A crowd of heads all facing the giant front doors, phones recording from every angle. They're talking so loud they don't notice the thump. What are you doing? Carlos screams in the silence. I move toward the middle of the hallway, make the mistake of looking back, Becky's foot smashing Carlos's balls into the chair, her sword mid-swing. There's a waiter's black tray with two empty glasses on the console table. I get hold of it, knock it off when there's the loud clank of metal on metal, my shattering glass and a clattering tray a split second after. I don't know what's happening behind me, my eyes on the crowd, a few of the women looking back. I hold up my free hand and wave them back to what they were doing. Sorry, I say, surprising myself with how calm I sound. Had an accident. They all look away, join the excitement as my father approaches. From behind, it looks like Becky's comforting Carlos, cradling his head against her stomach. Another step and I hear her crying. See she has one hand holding his head there the other holding her sword, the hilt buried between Carlos's chin and the metal collar. Becky can't speak, just cries. He said his daughter 
They have his daughter. The front door opens to the clapping sound. I don't want to do this. I just want it to end. I put my hand on hers and pull out the sword. Unleash a flow of blood. The bottom half of her shirt soaking red. The sword's jagged, broken in half by the collar. Becky lays it on Carlos's lap and says, Sorry. The clapping dies down, a man telling everyone to be quiet. I make out the top of my father's hair, the man in a black suit questioning him, nearly half a head taller. The man gets in Dad's face and barks, You Hank Nolan? Yes, I am. I need to speak to General Warrior Son and the girl. I said, the slap echoes across the room before I register the man's movement. He says, Where are they? Dad groans. I wait for him to give me up again, bright side all over. Up the hill. The blue motor home. You heard him. A powerful voice booms from the side room to the right. Go get those pieces of shit. Chapter 30 The ballroom is huge, nearly the size of the VFW hall, with a ceiling twice as high, a shiny wood floor and ornate curtained windows instead of white tile and brick. Nestled against the wall of the windows are fancy tables with wine glasses and cheese platters. Two dozen empty chairs, the guests in their thousand-dollar outfits, standing in a half-circle around the stage that takes up the front of the room. Becky and I are at the rear of the crowd. I'm keeping right in front of her, so I can hear her thoughts, and no one sees her blood-stained shirt. The stage is two feet high, just tall enough for me to see the top of the piano in the corner. The wall is a magnificent marble fireplace, with an enormous painting hanging above it. Lights above and below shining on the gold-framed mountainside scene, the sun breaking over the trees, like I'm back in Brightside looking out my window, the one Rachel splattered with her brains. Joe, focus. I say sorry and look for Dad. He's down on the stage where I can't see him. That's where he's been since he got dragged in by the two boots standing on either side of General Voltaire his forehead carved with the kind of deep-set wrinkles you get from seeing some serious shit. The general dons a creepy smile, waits for the crowd to quiet. Thank you all for coming to our special day of celebration. What luck to have unexpected guests make it so much sweeter. The general faces the TV. Turn to the front gate, the general says like he's speaking to Alexa. The flat screen filling the sidewall pops on, switches to a view of the street, our blue motorhome just visible at the top of the small hill. The general holds out his arms like he's some magnificent magician. Let us watch what happens to enemies of the state. I ask Becky, what now? We wait for the sign. Four boots walk in a line toward the motorhome, submachine guns ready. Holy shit, the tension's high. The room's silent except for their minds screaming for my blood. Joe, put it back. I look down, see the grenade in my left hand. Slip it back in my pocket. The general says, It's okay, sweetheart. You can come up. 
I can't see who he's talking to until a pudgy preteen with long blonde hair steps on stage and hugs him. The boots on screen plod forward, split the distance between the motorhome and the front gate. The general wraps his arm around the girl's shoulders and keeps her close. It's okay, Natalie. He can't hurt you. The chubby cheeks and blue eyes say Matthew and Kirk are her brothers. I'm watching the general, but everyone else is glued to the screen. So many minds with one message. Kill that motherfucker. There's a loud pop from outside. A communal gasp in here. Another pop, and a second boot flops to the street. Pop, pop. The other two collapse, no one saying a word. The general barks. Get them! The motorhome's headlights blink on as more boots run on the screen, sticking to the trees and shadows. The boot to the general's right shouts, Secure the gate! No one besides Becky recognizes Dirt walking onto the bottom of the screen, and none of the boots see him aiming his M27 at their backs. Dirt puts three pops in each target, drops them all. The women are screaming, the men are shouting. Two boots I hadn't seen have their guns pointed at the windows toward the front gate that's halfway closed. The motorhome blasts forward, its lights growing bigger. One of Dirt's victims is crawling to the sidewalk, almost there when the motorhome flattens his head, the general hiding the girl's face against his chest. Lockdown, lockdown! An official-sounding voice shouts over the speaker. Unseen locks slam into place, steel shutters descend, people screaming and pushing, the motorhome filling most of the screen, the gate nearly closed. A boot yells, Protect the principal! The gate looks solid, but the motorhome is huge. It changes direction at the last second and slams into the power pole to the right, the entire motorhome exploding, rocking us to the ground, blowing in the windows, the power gone. A flickering light is coming from the flames outside. A woman nearby cries for help. Someone! My husband's hurt! No one cares, everyone crawling over each other through the broken glass, trying to get away. I don't know where Dad is but he thinks to Becky so loud it echoes in her head. Get him! I'm on my feet, gun in hand, Becky beside me. I tell her, You get the general, I'll grab the girl. My heart's pounding, finger on the trigger, can't see a fucking thing with all the bodies bouncing off each other, shining their phone flashlights in everyone's wide-eyed face, screaming out names, an overwhelming cry of, Help! I don't know where Natalie went, so I scramble to the stage where I last saw her. From the foyer, someone shouts, The door! The door's locked. I pass a boot who thinks, these assholes wouldn't make it a day in the field. Loud enough for all to hear, he says, we're safe inside. I kick the bottom of the stage a second before a flashlight flicks on, that same boot behind it. He points it at the foyer door and says, everyone hit. There's a loud blam and an oomph. The flashlight clatters on the floor, his body right behind it. Down. It's another boot, but sitting down, his back to the wall. Everyone, down! Get below the windows! I stay on my feet, hope that dirt won't open fire. The flashlight's beam is angled my way and lights Natalie, who's balled up a few feet away by the leg of the piano. I hurry to her side and get on my knees, her thoughts a chainsaw cutting through the shrieks. My head's high enough to be taken off, but I'm trusting dirt, focusing on my mission. I lay my hand on Natalie's shoulder, my arm shaking from the sobs racking her body. Everything's okay, sweetie. I say loudly because whispering won't work. I'll take you to your brothers. She looks up, but it's too dark to see her features. Are they okay? She asks, the voice of a child. Yeah, my friend's keeping watch over them. Someone picks up the flashlight. 
and our side of the room is back in darkness as he heads for the foyer. I put my hand on Natalie's back and say, Hold on. The guy with the flashlight makes it one, two, three steps before the explosion knocks him off his feet. His partner, crouching between the windows, shouts, Sniper, pinning us down in the ballroom. Natalie squeals, They're gonna shoot us. I shush her and say, Stay low and keep hold of my hand. Can you do that? She thinks she can and squeezes so hard it hurts. The door leading to the foyer is packed full of people, and the door on this side of the room is where they took the general. The hallway is dark, a few inches of night, giving us just enough light to see about three feet in front of us. I keep it slow while I get my bearings to listen for Becky. I ask Natalie, You doing okay? She starts sobbing again, stops moving. No! Come on, Natalie. We've... The ballroom door bangs off the wall. The boot who'd been hiding below the window is running full speed, shotgun in hand, no time to slow down. There's going to be a collision, so I snatch Natalie and draw her close, use my back to shield her. The boot jukes to the side because he just wants away from the bullets, but his shoulder catches mine, all three of us falling. I land on Natalie, the boot not so lucky, his head thunking on the baseboard. I can see in the dark, his head's right there, the shotgun out of his reach. Natalie's facing the other way, and I've got my Glock aimed, my finger on the trigger. But I can't pull it. This guy's a coward, pretending he's knocked out, thinking about how he should have listened to his wife. The emergency lights flicker on, and the steel shutters descend, click into place. I help Natalie to her feet and ask, Do you know where they took your grandpa? That room would be safest for you. She seems like a sweet kid, nothing like her brother's. There's only one room we're never allowed in. Upstairs, at the back. I feel terrible tricking her, but say, Good job, Natalie. The boot keeps still. His mind tries to place my voice. I kick his shotgun farther down the hall and head for the stairway at the end. We're heading up when Natalie says, What about Matthew and Kirk? Hold on. I press my mic and radio. Bring the boys upstairs as soon as it's clear. Safe room is at the back. Natalie squeezes my hand. I'm scared she says, sounding like a mouse. I whisper, everything will be okay, and start up the next flight of stairs. We're nearly to the top when Becky thinks, stop, but it's too late. She's standing in front of me on the landing, looking away, both blood-stained hands in the air. There's a dead boot by her feet, her knife buried in his neck. Your pocket, Becky thinks, do it. I let go of Natalie's hand and pull out the grenade, step to the side so I can see where to toss it. The woman on the other side of the landing has a silver sentinel collar around her neck, her gun aimed at Becky's head. Sarah. We need to hurry, but any quick movement and Sarah's shooting. I'm hiding behind Becky, hiding Natalie behind me. Sarah blocks the door ten feet away at the end of the hall, black pants and blue blouse, the outfit of the enemy. There's another closed door to Becky's left, an open one on the right. I've got no idea what Sarah's aim is like or if she's ever shot a gun but if she empties it, she'll probably hit all three of us. She can hear you. And I can shoot, Sarah says, her solid stance backing her up. Don't move, Joe. And put that away. Natalie wonders why Sarah's pointing a gun at us if she knows my name. I speak softly. Don't want to upset Sarah, whose rosy red cheeks pale in comparison to her much brighter lipstick. I can't do one and not the other, I say as I take a small step to Becky's right, slip the grenade back in my pocket. 
Sarah switches the gun from Becky to me, fading bruises on both her cheeks. Stop! I keep Natalie behind Becky and tell Sarah, look, she's only a child. Let's get her out of the way. Sarah can't see who it is, but doesn't say no. I bring down Becky's hand and guide it to Natalie's. Becky will take care of you. Natalie says, okay, but is trying to figure out who we are. Thinking of the Sentinels, she says, I thought they worked for us. Sarah says, I do. Then... I face Sarah, blocking Becky and Natalie with my body. Step over the boot with a knife in his neck. I take one side step, then another, and say, You don't need these two. Sarah sees what I'm about to do and says, Stop! I push Natalie and Becky through the open doorway, realize I'm close enough to read Sarah's thoughts. I tell her, You're not hurting them. Sarah's got the trigger pulled halfway, her eyes narrowed, burning into the spot on my forehead she's about to blast. This isn't the way I thought I'd go, but it's all good. Death is death. It's all the same. Not wanting Sarah to feel guilty, I think. It's okay. Her face is all anger, eyes like spears. I fucking hate you. I did everything I could to- No! Sarah screams so loud everyone in the mansion can probably hear it. You ruined everything! My blood's thrumming through my veins, my heart drumming on my chest, but I stay calm. More curious than mad, I ask. Why are you doing this? What do you think? Because you hate me. Not everything's about you. You're right. It's about you. You, helping the enemy. From the safety of the side room, Becky thinks, Joe, we gotta hurry. Sarah keeps the gun aimed at my head, her arms steady. Tell your girlfriend I've got all day. Neither one of us says a word. Sarah's face falls any chance of forgiveness gone. Oh my God, I should have known. You're a fucking predator. No, he's not. Sarah shakes her head. I never meant a thing to you. You're just a user. I can't argue with her. We need to get through that door. Sarah's still stuck on our kiss. How I thought it silenced everything, collapsed my universe. That was day 99, only eight nights ago but might as well be forever. Her gun lowers a little, but her fingers on the trigger, ready to blast me center mass. I hate you. Yes, Sarah. I'm a huge piece of shit. I dragged you and Danny into this mess, and I'll always be sorry for that. Shoot me if you want, but let them finish their mission. Don't help these people. Tears run down her cheeks, much of her anger now aimed at herself. If I don't cooperate, they'll kill Danny. You don't know? Know what? She says, voice cracking. Becky reminds me we gotta move. Backup's got to be coming. They killed Danny. I don't believe you. I don't know when, but it was before we got to the park. They were going to pulverize him with all the other bodies at the recycling center. Sarah shakes her head, the silver collar around her neck unmoving. You're lying, she says, so softly it's more like a question. Tone warns he's behind me to my left so I don't block his shot. He asks Sarah, want to see the video? She aims at Tone who's crouched at the top of the stairs, his M16 trained on her. I can't leave, Sarah says. 
Next it'll be my parents. Someone else I love. Becky steps out from the room, gun down by her side. I'm sorry, Sarah, but they're probably already dead. They murdered mine, and they're never going to stop unless we make them. The radio buzzes, then goes to heavy breathing. Not looking good out here, fellas. Got reinforcements flying in. You two figure this shit out later. We need the general. Where are the boys? Downstairs, Sarah asks. His grandsons? Tone nods. Her eyes go big. Oh my god, you killed them! Natalie screams. No! What the fuck, Tone? Tone keeps his gun trained on Sarah, his hate on me. Fall in line, soldier, and do your goddamn duty. How many more lives are you going to let this bitch ruin? There's a loud blast, and Tone's thrown forward, dead before he hits the carpet. The back of his head a big mess of blood, brains, and buckshot. The boot who had crashed into us down below is pumping the shotgun, running up the last stairs, aiming at my chest. I fumble for my gun, can't get it out the holster. A shot's fired, but not from his gun. The bullet whizzing past my ear and punching through the boot's forehead, his body thumping down the stairs. Sarah lowers her gun and sobs. I'm sorry. I get my gun out in case anyone else is coming. You just saved me. It's my fault Danny's dead, she says, the most despondent I've ever heard her. I step toward her, see all the makeup was to hide her bruises. The boots killed him. Becky tells me. She turned them in, just like I told you. I'm sorry. I thought it was the only way. None of that matters. Help us get... What is it? Your collar. There's a row of red lights around it. Sarah drops the gun, both hands flying to the collar. It's not budging. I take hold of it, a dull buzz aching my bones. There's no button to press, no way to get it off her. I don't know what's going to happen, but I stay calm, tell her. Look at me, Sarah. It's going to be over. Joe? Her eyes are so blue, so beautiful, drowning in grief. Joe, I'm scared. There's a sharp click, and Sarah winces, shrieks as rivers of blood pour out from under the collar and run down like lava. She goes limp and crashes to the carpet. I kneel beside her, ignore all the blood, tell her it's going to be okay. Joe, stop. Becky pulls my hand off Sarah and says, Remember your mission. Chapter 31 the wood door Sarah was guarding is locked, and we don't have time to look for keys. I hurry over to the boots Sarah plugged and scoop up his shotgun, peek down the staircase but don't see anyone. Becky and Natalie have their backs to the wall. I tell them, cover your eyes and ears. The shotgun blows a hole in the door that's big enough to reach through. I unlock it and ease it open, waiting for return fire. The bedroom is gigantic, several times the size of the one I had in Brightside. To my right is a closet with a sliding mirrored door, a bathroom beside it. The middle of the room is taken up by a massive four-corner bed, and taking up the left side is a sunken hot tub that looks like it could hold a dozen people. Becky brings Natalie in, and they follow me as I clear the bathroom, check under the bed, even make sure there's no one hiding in the hot tub. It's a dead end. Gunfire explodes, wheels squeal, metal crashes all barely muffled by the shuttered windows. There aren't any other doors in here. We're trapped. 
The radio buzzes. Heading inside. Can't hold him long. Becky's looking to me for the answer. A beautiful angel, covered in blood and bruises. A chorus of gunshots blazing below. Natalie's been hunched over since she heard about her brothers. Hasn't said a word. She jerks back when I touch her arm and tell her I need her help. I try to sound nice when I ask, Where's the room you couldn't enter? I raise her chin so she'll look at me. Is this it? Natalie nods. The closet. It looks like a normal mirrored closet door, but it doesn't slide, doesn't budge. It's a door, but there's no handle, no way for me to open it. Right in front of you, above the door. The camera's small, but all we've got. I want him only seeing me, so I direct Becky to my left. She guides Natalie by the neck up against the wall. I tell her, you watch that door, see if you can block it. Natalie says, I want to go home. I shush her. We know. This'll all be over soon. The overhead speaker startles me, the general saying, Now what? This is Joe Nolan. Oh, I know who you are, Joe. I know all about you. I can't think of anything to say with Becky grunting and shoving a waist-high dresser in front of the door, gunshots down below. I pretend this is some movie, and I'm the badass tough guy. Heard you've been looking for me. You're a difficult man to get hold of. It sounds like he's enjoying this. Must take after your father. Yeah, my mom wasn't so good at that, huh, you fuck? So what's the plan, Joe? Call to say goodbye to your father? The general says, waiting to make sure I got it. Planning on waiting us out? I keep cool, pretending I knew they had dad. Well, I was hoping you weren't going to be such a pussy. Is everyone in the army, or just the generals who run when it comes time to battle? I hope you know I'm filming all this. He doesn't call me on the lie, doesn't seem to care. You guys were pretty good, but how could you not plan for a safe room? No, we planned for it, Becky says. She leaves the door and joins my side, stares at the camera. Took the necessary precautions, painful though they might be. You do understand the game is over. Your time is up. I accept that. You're totally right. But at least we're not going out alone. She grabs Natalie's wrist and pulls her between us, making a show of sticking the barrel under her chin. But enough about that. How about you open this door before we splatter your granddaughter's blood all over the ceiling? I've seen it done. It leaves quite an impression. The delay says he's scared. You're going to burn. I don't want this to happen, General. I didn't want your grandsons killed either. He's silent. The voices are louder, might be on the staircase. So like I said, open the fucking door. I'll kill your father. Becky holds up a small black remote with a red button, and I push this button, vaporize every inch of that room. He was pat down. It's a bluff. Yeah? Well, too bad you didn't check his wound. The speaker buzzes, and the general says, Killing me won't do anything for you. His tone says they've seen the lump pushing out Dad's incision, the one I knew nothing about until Becky filled me in. I tell the general, Neither will letting you live. There's no response, just more voices coming from the staircase. I take Natalie and hold her in front of me. You're running out of time. I guess we both are. I feel awful doing it, but pluck a handful of Natalie's hair, her shriek even worse than I hoped for. 
sacrificing your only remaining grandchild. How noble. Stop, he says, more of a plea than an order. Okay. We'll open up. Exchange Natalie for your father. I stick my gun under her chin, raise it until she's staring into the camera, tears falling. We're not fucking idiots. We trade for you. Don't hurt her. I'll bring out your father. Becky sets the shotgun down and tears a curtain from the window, ties Natalie's hands behind her back. She walks to the dresser propped in front of the door and squeezes behind her so she can cover the safe room door and the bedroom door at once. You don't move until I say so, Becky tells Natalie, like she's talking to a hardened criminal. I take cover at the edge of the bed, my gun trained at the safe room door, a few feet too far to hear what the girls are thinking. Are you ready for the exchange? There haven't been any more gunshots. No way for us to know what the general's been telling his men down the hall, their voices subdued. Becky has a pistol in one hand, the remote in her other. She whispers, They're waiting for the general's order. Can't see anyone through this, but I'm picking up their thoughts. Three or four of them. A spasm shakes my failing body, and I nearly drop my gun, time running out. I set the grenade on the bed a few inches from my face. Go, I tell the general. Exchange. There's a low buzz, and the mirrored door swings open slowly, the shoulder of someone pushing it the first thing to show. Becky's got a clear shot of the safe room, but the half-open door blocks everything but a sliver of light blue wall. I tell them, Open it all the way. My dad walks out, with the tall boot that smacked him crouching behind, a big black gun driving into the back of Dad's head. Dad's in my range, the boot just outside of it. Dad thinks, It's time. That's not the deal. From where we can't see him, the general says, No. But this is the situation. Dad thinks. Press it. I've got no idea what kind of blast it'll be, and clutch the bed as Becky holds up the remote. She steps in front of Natalie and says, Goodbye. The boot pushes Dad right at me, fires as he backpedals toward the closing door. Blam, blam, blam. Dad slams face first into the foot of the bed and crumples to the floor. I pull the pin and leap to my right, pitch the grenade high and hard at the inside wall of the safe room. The boot in the doorway turns as it sails over his head and bounces off the back wall, but he's still firing blindly. Becky has her back to him, pressing Natalie against the wall. I roll toward the bed as the general slams into the boot's back, spinning him around so he's facing the grenade, the general controlling him by his jacket. I bring up my gun, get the general in my sight, fumble with the trigger, then boom! A giant cloud of smoke, my hearing gone, blown onto my back. Everything's ringing, and I'm staring at two visions of the ceiling until it blends into one. I roll over and get on all fours, grab the Glock. No one else is moving, everyone on the ground, no thoughts close enough to hear. That's scary because Dad's in range, face down at the foot of the bed, fresh blood spreading across the back of his shirt. The General's on his back, halfway between Dad and the safe room, stuck under the boot-turned shield. The boot's entire front is shredded, his face unrecognizable, a pool of red surrounding them. The general's eyes are open, but he's definitely stunned, blinking at me like what he sees makes no sense. Natalie's on the ground next to the dresser. Becky's piled on top of her, eyes closed, body limp. I crawl to Dad's side, keep my gun aimed at the general's face. The ringing's still loud, 
but I can make out Natalie's frantic screams, unable to get out from under Becky with her hands bound behind her back. I say, It'll be okay. But I can barely hear myself. I shake Dad, but there's nothing. I shake him harder. Hate seeing how far the crimson puddle has spread. Dad jerks his head off the ground, puts his face back down with a loud moan. I touch his forehead, tell him, We're almost done. He grimaces and pushes himself up so he's sitting against the foot of the bed. The general's no threat, so I check Becky. She doesn't respond to my touch, so I circle to her side, slipping on the slick tile. The entire left side of her body is drenched in blood, a large piece of shrapnel sticking out of her neck. I ease Becky off Natalie. Hold my broken angel. Her flight over so young. Her cheek is warm, her hair soft under my palm. No amount of my tears able to bring her back. A week ago it was Rachel, now Sarah and Becky. Everyone who cares for me paying the price. Natalie's petrified, eyes like a trapped deer's. I say, you're safe, thanks to Becky, not your grandfather. She stays balled up, eyes on me, but no movement. I think maybe she doesn't hear me, but it's probably just shock, her not trusting a bloodied killer. I back up and lay Becky down, pick up thoughts by the door. I can't hear the man's whispering, but he's thinking it loud. We go on three, two. I stay crouched, aim at the hole. One. The door bangs, the dresser barely moving. It's blocked. I fire two rounds through the hole, hear him cry out, then yell, Agent down! Time to wrap it up. Dad's thoughts are slow. We gotta go. I peek over the top of the dresser, can't see anyone in the hallway. There's nowhere to go. This is it, son. His face is drained of all color. He nods at Becky. Let's finish the job. I'm afraid to leave the door, but know I can't guard it forever. I crawl back to Becky. What am I looking for? The general clears his throat, spits out a mouthful of blood, his eyes now clear. What did you do? Saved your granddaughter, you piece of shit. The general rolls the boot off his chest, his legs still stuck. You broke into my house and killed my family. There's no gun within his reach, so I turn back to Becky, wonder what Dad was talking about. The remote. Check her hand. I open her fist, the tiny black box slick with sweat, the single red button. The general's talking, but I'm barely listening. Something about him making the world a better place. I'm confused and hold up the remote for Dad. It's real? I thought you tricked them. Becky didn't press it. Worried it'd kill the girl. What, heroes? This is the strongest our country has ever been. The most secure. I check the door. Don't see anyone. Train the gun back on him to make him nervous. Yeah? At what cost? A few meaningless lives for the greater good. 
Dad's barely with us. Becky gone. No one around to guide me, say something smart. Mom always said look on the bright side. But you see even half the things I've seen do half the things I've done. And even the brightest side is pretty fucking dark. I peek through the hole in the door, see three boots with rifles. They all fire, and I collapse on the ground as their bullets blast by overhead. With the remote in my left and gun in my right, I huddle next to Dad, his eyes half-closed. You ready? He nods. The general begs for his life, doesn't say a word about Natalie. I can't believe I'd almost forgotten about her. I say her name, but she doesn't respond. I shoot the general in his side to get her attention. The general's screaming for help and I'm yelling at Natalie. You got five seconds to get in that hot tub. The general's holding his side, can't move, but Natalie's on her feet, crouched over and hurrying to the other side of the room. Maybe that's it, I tell Dad. We did something good by saving her. We weren't all bad. Dad tries to smile. Joe, please do me the honor. I want to shoot the general so he'll stop yelling, but I'd rather he watch. I drop the gun and take hold of Dad's shoulders, put my head against his. You made me so proud. I love you. I always loved you. There's gunfire and wood flying, shouts and screams, but it doesn't matter. The general doesn't matter. Becky doesn't matter. I tell Dad. All that's left is you and me. This is it. This is... The End. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.